Welcome to Skim This. Inflation numbers are in from this morning, and no surprise here, things are still really expensive. We'll break down the report as well as the other big headlines from the week, from the last January 6 hearing before the midterms to Putin's latest escalation in the war in Ukraine. And in other international news, China's leader Xi Jinping is on track to lead the country for an unprecedented third term. We'll talk to an expert about what's to come for U.S.-China relations. He has shown that China is not going to become more free and open just because the rest of the world trades with China. Also on the show, we're taking a look at the legacy of the Me Too movement, five years after the first Harvey Weinstein article came out. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some of the week's biggest headlines and give you the context on why they matter. First up, it's that time of the month again. This morning, we got the inflation report from September. The key measure is called the Consumer Price Index, and it tells us that prices went up 8.2% for the year through September. And while that rate of increase is actually down a tiny bit from August, it still means inflation is at a 40-year high. Shocker, right? Experts predict these latest inflation numbers will force the Federal Reserve to hike interest rates yet again in order to chill out demand and avoid a recession. Meanwhile, 90% of CEOs have said they're wondering not if, but when a recession will happen, which could mean that unemployment will go up as companies cut jobs. And speaking of jobs, the jobs report from last week found that the labor market is still going strong, but job growth is slowing slightly. And P.S., if all of these economic headlines are making you stressed, we've got you covered. On Monday, we're dropping a special episode all about how to stay sane in this economy. All right, for our next headline, we're going to D.C., where the January 6 hearings are back, probably for the last time. The House Select Committee trying to uncover what led to January 6th from what is likely to be their final public hearing. That attack on the Capitol was fueled by conspiracy theories and lies about the 2020 election. The House January 6th Select Committee is closing out their summer of public hearings with one final session tonight before the midterms. The last hearing was back in July, so let's recap what we've learned so far. Over the summer, we heard from a former White House aide named Cassidy Hutchinson, who detailed Donald Trump's alleged physical altercation with a Secret Service agent. We also got tea from Georgia and Arizona state officials, who were apparently asked by the former president to find votes or surrender voting machines in order to change the results of the 2020 election. Plus, we learned that advisors close to Trump told him the election wasn't stolen, warned him of the impending violence on January 6th, and pushed him to call off the mob. So that's what's gone down so far. And since we last heard from the committee in July, about 900 people have been charged for their involvement on January 6th, ranging from obstruction of an official proceeding to assault on law enforcement. 
The committee has also interviewed Jenny Thomas, wife of Justice Clarence Thomas and GOP activist behind closed doors. Thomas reportedly pushed the White House chief of staff, Arizona lawmakers, and others to defy election results. So what happened today? Well, the committee kind of played their greatest hits and summarized the information they had to date about Trump, his circle, and what he was doing on that day. The committee also revealed Trump had planned to declare victory regardless of the election results on election night. And they scrutinized the role of the Secret Service on January 6th and alleged that agents knew about potential violence leading up to that day, which is earlier than we originally thought. And in an October surprise, the committee voted to subpoena former President Donald Trump during Thursday's hearing. Those in favor will say aye. 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 Those opposed is no. In the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. But one thing to know here is that this move is pretty symbolic. It's unlikely Trump will comply with the subpoena. And according to NBC, the subpoena actually expires at the end of this congressional term. So the clock is ticking. Trump also wouldn't be the first president to testify before Congress. Presidents Lincoln, Wilson, and Ford also have. After this final hearing, the committee has to publish a report on its findings by the end of the year, before it loses its only two Republican members. For our next headline, let's go abroad and turn to the war in Ukraine. Russia escalated its invasion of Ukraine this week with the biggest wave of deadly airstrikes since the beginning of the war. Things have continued to escalate. Over the weekend, an explosion destroyed the only bridge linking Russia to the Russian annexed area of Ukraine, Crimea. The Kremlin claims that Ukraine was responsible for what they're calling a terrorist attack. To retaliate, Putin launched missiles on Ukrainian cities like the capital of Kyiv and Odessa. Civilians took cover in bomb shelters as Putin's attacks specifically targeted civilians and critical infrastructure like power plants. At least 19 people were killed by the blasts, and more than 100 were injured. The missiles also blew out electrical grids, leaving people without power and cell service. These latest attacks rang alarm bells in the international community. And since then, more than 50 countries, including the U.S. and Germany, have promised to send Ukraine more weapons, specifically air defense missile systems. Also this week, G7 leaders and NATO Secretary General condemned Putin's recent attacks, and both affirmed that they'll step up the support and stick with Ukraine no matter how long it takes to end this war. Meanwhile, India and China, who are two of Russia's biggest allies, have hopped on the bandwagon and called for Putin to de-escalate the attacks. This was a big deal, considering both countries have been pretty hush-hush when it comes to criticizing Putin. But with a harsh winter ahead, some military analysts think both Russia and Ukraine might take time to reset and maybe cool things off after months of fighting, while others say the two countries aren't backing down anytime soon. For our final headline, we've got an update on immigration from the Biden administration. 
new policy is being considered by the White House that would allow some Venezuelan migrants to get expedited access to the U.S. On Wednesday, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security announced a new program to try to slow Venezuelan migration. DHS said a new humanitarian parole program will accept up to 24,000 Venezuelans into the U.S. through an official point of entry. The program will also send migrants who illegally cross the U.S.-Mexico border back to Mexico. U.S. and Mexico officials agreed to the plan to ease pressure on the border and on cities and states that have received migrants recently. And this announcement came just a few weeks after several U.S. governors bust and flew migrants to cities like New York and Washington, D.C. Analysts are comparing this new initiative to the Uniting for Ukraine program, which allows Ukrainian citizens and their families to seek temporary shelter in the U.S. for a two-year period due to the war. In this case, many Venezuelans have crossed the U.S. southern border as they flee political instability and a shaky economy. Those who are eligible will need a U.S.-based sponsor and have to fulfill health-related requirements. Once cleared, they can live and work legally in the United States. Five years ago, when you listened to the news or turned on the TV, it sounded like this. The wall of silence surrounding Harvey Weinstein officially collapsing. Allegations by numerous women who say the Hollywood mogul sexually harassed them. The hashtag Me Too. Democratic Senator Al Franken of kissing and groping her. Bill Cosby's sexual assault trial. There is now nowhere left for you to hide, Larry. The accusers are coming forward in droves. The Me Too movement started growing in October 2017, after journalists from The New York Times and The New Yorker brought film producer Harvey Weinstein into the spotlight for sexually assaulting and harassing the women he worked with and paying them off to keep quiet about it. Dozens of people, mostly women, soon came forward sharing their stories of intimidation and coercion by Weinstein and other men, like Charlie Rose and Kevin Spacey. And that reinvigorated a phrase created by survivor and activist Tarana Burke a decade prior. Hashtag MeToo. MeToo exposed just how much sexual assault and harassment was happening worldwide, especially in the workplace. And five years later, MeToo's legacy is still with us, especially as Harvey Weinstein enters his second criminal trial in Los Angeles this week. And that got us thinking about everything that's happened since those first articles came out. So we're going to skim five things that have happened in the five years since the first Weinstein story broke. And spoiler, we're going to need more than 60 seconds for this one. The first thing to know is that accused perpetrators got punished. Less than a week after the articles dropped detailing his abuse, Harvey Weinstein was fired from his own production company, and was expelled by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, AKA the group that hands out the Oscars. Now, he's serving a 23-year prison sentence after being found guilty of rape and assault, and he's had to shell out millions in civil suits. And he's not the only man who faced consequences. Their time is up. A year after Me Too blew up, the New York Times reported that at least 201 men in power across different industries were brought down because of sexual assault and harassment allegations. 
So that's the first thing that happened. The second is that lawmakers took notice and passed legislation to protect people at work. According to one estimate, since October 2017, 22 states and the District of Columbia have passed legislation around workplace harassment, and many of those bills passed with bipartisan support. And 17 states have restricted the use of NDAs, or non-disclosure agreements, in settlements with survivors, which many abusers like Weinstein relied on to silence people. While on the federal level, in February of this year, Congress passed its first major piece of legislation around sexual assault and harassment in the workplace. Commonly referred to as the Me Too Bill, it prohibits employers from forcing sexual assault and harassment claims into arbitration, meaning survivors can seek justice in a courtroom rather than settling behind closed doors. And that brings us to the third consequence of the Me Too movement, a shift in our workplace culture. According to Pew Research, seven out of 10 U.S. adults believe that compared to five years ago, people who commit sexual harassment or assault at work are more likely to be held responsible. And six out of 10 people say those who report harassment or assault at work are now more likely to be believed. But we should point out, Me Too also impacted how women and men work together. In 2022, Pew found that almost half of men surveyed said the increased focus on sexual harassment and assault has made it harder for them to know how to interact with women at work. And that potentially disadvantages their female colleagues. The fourth thing to know is that we've seen the Me Too movement has limits. One notable example happened back in 2018. After President Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, a woman named Christine Blasey Ford accused Kavanaugh of sexually assaulting her. She gave a long and emotional testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee, but ultimately, Kavanaugh was still confirmed as a justice. We've also seen a lot of examples of both accused and guilty men making professional comebacks, like comedian Louis C.K., who, after admitting he sexually assaulted women, still won a Grammy for his comedy album this year and continues to tour in big venues. And that brings us to our final point. The Me Too movement does have staying power in our culture. The movement made Americans more aware of sexual harassment and assault at work and has likely increased support and resources for survivors. If you're looking for a refresher on the movement and the journalists who broke those stories, you'll soon get a chance to see them on the big screen. Hi, we're from the New York Times. I believe you used to work for Harvey Weinstein. The She Said movie about the Weinstein reporting drops on November 18th. Thanks for your patience. That was way more than 60 seconds. But how'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. This coming weekend, Xi Jinping, the general secretary of China's Communist Party and the leader of the country, is about to kick off his unprecedented third term in charge. And as he's about to cement his legacy as China's most powerful leader almost ever, we wanted to take a step back and think about how Xi Jinping has changed China and changed the world. 
To help, we're calling in an expert, Sue Lin Wong, the China correspondent for The Economist and the host of the new podcast miniseries, The Prince, which dives into the life of Xi Jinping. Sue Lin, I want to start with what's happening this weekend. Xi Jinping, I guess he's not getting a promotion, but he's kind of just staying in charge. Can you walk me through what's going on and why it's significant? This weekend marks the start of China's Party Congress. And that's an event that happens once every five years. And it's the most important event on China's political calendar. It's where we'll see who the next leader of China is going to be and also who he will be surrounded by at the very top of the Chinese Communist Party. What makes this party congress particularly interesting is that Xi Jinping, the leader of China, is expected to break convention and continue on. So over the past few decades, Chinese leaders traditionally stay for two five-year terms. So they stay for a total of 10 years. But Xi Jinping has already been in power for 10 years. And barring any huge surprises, what is expected is that he's actually going to stay on for at least the next five years and maybe for the rest of his life. So he gets this extension on his leadership. But what has he been like as a leader? When Xi Jinping came to power 10 years ago, China and the Chinese Communist Party was in crisis. So the Chinese Communist Party has nearly 100 million members and corruption throughout the ranks was rife. And people were genuinely questioning whether the Chinese Communist Party might be around for much longer. Xi Jinping has made China much more closed and much more authoritarian and much less free than many people expected 10 years ago. And so what he's done is he's seized control of the Chinese Communist Party through his signature corruption crackdown, but also by instilling ideological discipline up and down throughout the party. And so once he seized control of the Chinese Communist Party, he was then able to use these millions of people to seize control of China. And so what we've seen over the past 10 years is China become a lot more repressive. For example, we've seen more than a million Uyghurs who are an ethnic minority in northwestern China be locked up and pass through re-education camps. We've seen the Chinese Communist Party led by Xi Jinping turn Hong Kong, a once free and open city, into a police state. And we've seen Xi Jinping build up this censorship, propaganda and surveillance system throughout China, which makes it much, much harder for people to protest and voice their discontent. And as he's created, I think, what he would call a singular Chinese identity, what is it like for people living in China? What is their perception of him as a leader? So throughout my podcast, I really wanted to get at, you know, what do ordinary people think of Xi Jinping? The propaganda has been very effective and Xi Jinping has genuinely cracked down on corruption. So he does enjoy some popular support. What becomes very difficult to figure out is how much popular support he really enjoys, given there are 1.4 billion people in China, and it's very, very hard to speak freely to them and get a sense of 
what they really think of the government. What we do know is that China currently has a zero COVID policy. It's the only country in the world that still has it. And so there are these rolling lockdowns across the country and there is really no end in sight for when zero COVID ends. And that has caused a lot of discontent combined with a slowing Chinese economy. I want to get a sense of just how China's position in the world has changed since Xi Jinping took charge over the past two terms. What has he done for China's reputation internationally? When Xi Jinping came to power, there were still many governments around the world, and particularly in the West, who believed that we had to engage with China, we had to trade with them, and the more we we traded and the more we helped open up their civil society, the freer and more open China would become. No one believes that now. And the reason for that is Xi Jinping, because he has shown that China is not going to become more free and open just because the rest of the world trades with China and has economic ties with China. And in fact, under Xi Jinping, China has become a lot more aggressive around the world And more and more, we can see Chinese Communist Party influence operations in places like America, where they're trying to influence, say, academics at American universities, or they're trying to influence Chinese language media across America in ways that make the party more powerful and undermine Western liberal values that we all hold close to us. And thinking of how Xi Jinping might want to cement his legacy, there's been a lot of talk of him advancing China more into Taiwan. And we saw something really similar happen in Hong Kong, I guess, back in 2020. I'm curious about how you're thinking about Xi Jinping's interest in Taiwan and the potential international conflict that could arise, because President Biden has said the U.S. will be involved if that happens. Xi Jinping was born into Chinese Communist Party royalty. His dad fought alongside Mao Zedong. And Xi Jinping himself was raised by his father to believe that he was a true inheritor of the Chinese Communist Party's mission to create a stronger China. And fundamental to that mission is Taiwan. Because, you know, while in the West, we see Taiwan as a thriving democracy and a self-governing territory, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party see Taiwan as a province of China. And so one of Xi Jinping's most important priorities is to take back control of Taiwan from his perspective. How is he going to do that? Well, we don't know exactly, but increasingly there are fears that he could invade Taiwan. He could, when he sees the moment is right, launch some kind of military action. What is very, very concerning is that the Chinese Communist Party has a lot of tools in its toolkit, and we saw them use many of these tools on Hong Kong. So, for example, they co-opted many Hong Kong businesses because so many Hong Kong businesses are reliant on the Chinese market. They co-opted Hong Kong universities because they were so reliant on staying in the good books of the Chinese Communist Party. They even co-opted Western businesses. And infiltrated all kinds of institutions, the Hong Kong government, Hong Kong NGOs, Hong Kong churches. And I think in order to understand what might happen to Taiwan, Hong Kong is a very good example. One of the risks to Taiwan is that the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping 
is using the playbook they used on Hong Kong on Taiwan. So it's not just that there's this risk of a military strike. It's also that, you know, they might infiltrate Taiwan's institutions, co-opt its businesses and universities, and in other insidious ways, try to take control. What do you expect to see next from the Chinese-U.S. relationship and from Xi Jinping? Like, where is this all heading? So I think we can expect that he's going to become even more powerful. He'll be surrounded by even more of his own people. And that's, you know, very concerning for a number of reasons. It raises this question of information flows. If he's not getting good information because everyone around him is, is so scared of him and is not passing what's actually happening on the ground up to their big boss, that means that maybe decisions are going to be made without access to the best possible information. And that isn't good for China's relationship with the world and especially China's relationship with America, which is the most important bilateral relationship in the world. I think we should expect that Relations are not going to improve. Xi Jinping is going to continue on the path that he has. And I'm very pessimistic about a a way out and sort of a way to improve relations, given Xi is so focused on his mission to make China stronger and a more aggressive player in the world. Sulin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Alex. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And one of the most important things you can do is learn how to assess your own risk of developing breast cancer, especially since doctors have been changing their recommended guidelines about when you should start thinking about getting screened. So to break down what's changed, we sat down with one of our own health experts. I'm Carly Malenbaum. I'm the senior health writer at The Skim, and I write in our Skim wellness section. And Carly told us that we should be thinking about breast cancer screening a lot earlier than we were taught. If you're like me, you probably worn a pink jersey to your soccer game at some point. But something I found in my research this year that I'll be honest, I didn't realize until now is that there's a lot of advice to screen very early. And that means like before you're 40. I talked to Dr. Toma Umafoye, who's a breast radiologist, and her advice was to start having a conversation with your doctor as early as age 25 about breast cancer. That doesn't mean you get a mammogram at age 25. That means you talk to your doctor about, here's who in my family has had cancer. Here are some other things in my background that might be relevant. And your doctor can give you an idea of what your risk for breast cancer is. And if it's higher than the average risk, then you might want to talk about some other screening protocols you can go through. Research and innovation around breast cancer have come a long way since the first officially recognized Breast Cancer Awareness Month in October 1995. According to a study done by the American Cancer Society, the death rate from breast cancer has dropped 43% from 1989 to 2020, 
which translates to almost half a million fewer deaths. The study says that's due to more screenings at home, more mammograms across the board, and huge advancements in treatment options. And Carly told us it's never too early to start thinking about it. If you could screen for breast cancer even before you have a lump, that's actually much better because it's much more treatable if you find out you have breast cancer before you can even feel it. 9% of people who get breast cancer are younger than age 45. The goal is to really catch it as early as possible because your survival rate is much higher. So how do you start the process of early screening? It's important to get in the driver's seat at your next doctor's appointment, whether it's with your OBGYN or your primary care doctor. Ask them if now is the right time to talk about screening. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting a mammogram early. Rather, it's most likely going to be the start of a conversation about your specific risk based on your family history and lifestyle. And maybe a breast exam will follow. Carly also told us there are certain groups of people who have to be more diligent about early screening for breast cancer. Researchers say that while more white women are diagnosed with breast cancer, African-American women are more likely to die from it. And if you're of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, studies have shown you're at a higher risk of developing breast cancer at a young age. Plus, if your family has a history of early cancer diagnoses, you should start having these conversations now. Dr. Amafoye told me that if you're someone who has a higher than average risk, the first thing she would tell a patient in that situation is that you have options. First, find out if you had a genetic mutation. People have probably heard of the BRCA gene. You might want to then screen more frequently for breast cancer. The BRCA gene is one of the genes in your body that, if mutated, puts you at a higher risk of developing a few types of cancer most notably breast and ovarian cancer. A blood test can tell you if you have it. And we should note that even if you do have the mutation, it doesn't mean a cancer diagnosis is guaranteed. But knowledge is power, and just knowing about it could make you and your doctor more prepared down the road. If you already know you're at a higher risk thanks to genetics, Carly told us it's important to be upfront with your doctor so you have options to consider including options like having a preventative mastectomy. That's a conversation people have more now about whether you just want to remove the tissue that could be involved with cancer before it even happens. So you don't have to keep screening and you don't have to worry about it. It's not like a yes or no, you must decide right away. It's a conversation you can start having. I know I've talked to a lot of my friends who realize they've never had that conversation. And so I empower our listeners to, to drive it. If you're nervous, it's okay. Carly told us at-home screenings play a huge role in early detection. After all, no one knows your body better than you. Just be someone who knows their breasts, like before or after the shower, look in the mirror. How are they looking today? Dr. Mafoye is saying anything that feels a little off, even if it's not like a huge lump, is worth talking to your doctor about. She says, we love giving happy news that you screened and we found nothing. But anything that seems a little weird is worth coming in and just having a conversation and maybe screening. And a final reminder, breast cancer isn't exclusive to women. Guys should be taking notes too. Men come in for screenings and usually those male patients are like, oh, my wife told me to come in because something looked weird about my nipple. Like they didn't notice their wife noticed. 
It's good to just have that awareness of yourself, of your partner, because that has helped some people screen earlier than they otherwise would have. According to the American Cancer Society, breast cancer makes up about 30% of all new female cancers diagnosed in the U.S. each year. And nationwide, there are currently 3.8 million breast cancer survivors. If you're looking for more guidance on early screening or want to know what your risk is, head to theskim.com wellness or check out the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next week. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcast. It's called 9 to 5-ish, and it's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. You can find it wherever you're already listening to us.